Good morning. Good morning. My three over here had to ruin my plan. I was going to turn everything to face everybody. But I guess I'll keep it right here in the middle. Maybe with a slight angle. Y'all aren't forgotten. You're just the only three over there. Well, we are so excited to be back and at it this morning. Welcome, everybody. We hope you had a wonderful winter break and somebody's car alarm is going off. Alex. Love that. What, a, what an intern right there. What a guy. Uh, that is our setup director on Sunday mornings, folks. Um, but no, we are so excited. Uh, we'll be continuing our series in Philippians this morning. Uh, we'll be in Philippians 2, 14 through 18, if you want to turn there. Um, and as you turn there, just a little bit of setup for what we are talking about today. It is stemming off of where Kyle left us last time, which if you're looking for Pastor Kyle, he's not here this morning for good reason. It is his bride's birthday, so they are celebrating in Atlanta, I believe. So next time you see Jen, or even today, just wish her a happy birthday and let them know that they were missed this morning. Uh, But we'll be continuing in Philippians, like I said, and Kyle left us last time he taught in verse 13, which reads, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And that leads us into 14 through 18, where we'll be at today. That reads, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So really today we get to dive through what Paul is saying here in the church to Philippi, and it is all set up by verse 13 where it says, for it's God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. So we're going to take a solid portion of this morning answering that question, what is God's good pleasure? And that will then lead us into the understanding of why we are called and how we can do all things as we work out our salvation without grumbling or disputing. And I know that may seem impossible, but hopefully after today, wherever you're at in the room, we can come to a bit more of an understanding of what that looks like. But Father, we are so thankful this morning to come together again as the Branch Church Milledgeville, as your bride, as the local church. God, we have missed this of getting to come together before you as your children, God. And I just pray for everyone in this room, if they know you, that they would know you deeper today, that they would fall even more in love with you, that they would be even more sold out to the calling you have on their lives, God. And if there's somebody in here who is here to learn more about Christianity or is unsure, God, or even has had a bad taste before from the local church, I just pray that you would work in their hearts and soften them and speak a new truth to them today, that it would fall on ears to listen and a heart to receive, God. As only you can, we pray for life change today. We pray for change in Milledgeville and of the world. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. 
Amen. So like we said in verse 13, it leaves us off saying, for it is God who wills and works in you for his good pleasure. Right? And that is the precedent for why and how we are called and can do all things without grumbling or disputing. And if you are like me, maybe you can think back to this morning when you have already grumbled and disputed. And Paul is saying a couple things here in addressing two different types of grumblings. One is, yes, the grumbling of complaining and the other of the grumbling of disputing with what God is doing in our lives. So many times we may find ourselves in a position where we don't know the next step or the next step we thought we were going to get to take isn't there. The job that we thought would pan out in a certain way does not pan out in that way. Or the relationship that we thought should be as far along in this certain time is not that far along. The grumbling or disputing both with our complaints of not understanding God's will and then to the point of disputing God's will because it's not lining up with what we think it should be. And naturally, this is very easy to do when we have a false idea of what God's good pleasure is. So many teachers in the world today and in the world itself paints a picture of God that his good pleasure is fulfilling our good pleasure as if our pleasure is good to begin with and there's a friction so anytime this comes up and it's important to stop and understand the end goal of God as we talk about what it is we strive for and how we strive for we must understand that end goal of God And in doing so, we must relish an understanding that God is all in all for himself and his glory. That's why scripture is so clear that when we become sons and daughters of Christ, we are adopted into the family of Christ. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see Bailey plus Christ. He just sees his son. He only sees the blood of Christ. So again, the end goal of God being all in all for himself and for his glory. And far too many times in our own minds, we see that as selfish. So instead of letting God be who God says he is, we instead see a tailored version of God that is broken down to meet our needs according to our plans, step in step with us as we act, God acts, as we act, God acts. When the truth of the matter is, if God is as big as he says he is, if he is as sovereign as he says he is, he is not a God that responds to our actions. Now hear me out this morning. It's not something where we do one thing and then God says, oh, that caught me off guard. Let me steer him back this way. That's not how God operates our works with time or us as his creation that would then lower God to the level of creation, which he's not. Thankfully, he is not. Or, in other words, maybe we see that God is sovereign, but he's only who he says he is, and he's only sovereign if he makes that next step clear, or brings that blessing and provision, or delivers us. Our view of God then becomes conditional, and if it's a conditional view of God, it is very easy in this life to go through grumbling and disputing based on such a small view. The reality is this type of thinking 
takes scriptures like this in Romans 8.30 and replaces them for what they are and turns them into God being for us into such a way that we would expect a genie and a lamp to answer our three wishes. Instead of being an all-powerful, all-supreme, all-knowing, ever-present God. Much of our grumbling and disputing myself is because we replace who God says he is with what we would hope God to be, which is ultimately us at the end of the day. Maybe sometimes we slip into the thinking that because God didn't do X, Y, or Z, then he isn't perfect. Or if God didn't save my friend, then he isn't loving. Or if God didn't make a way for me around that trial, then he isn't present. If God doesn't save me from this sin, then he isn't faithful. The list goes on and on and on of the if-then statements we can come up with if we paint our God to look like us, and so does our grumbling and disputing. It goes on and on. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit holds nothing in common with the little gods we try to raise up in response to the one true God. So take this. God is for us in the way that he orchestrates all things to chisel us into the image of his son. So that on the day of Christ, when Christ does come back, as we'll see later in these verses, we will be found innocent and blameless before him because we resemble him. Now think about that and why that is the platform. We can even go through life without grumbling or disputing. And no, that doesn't mean it is easy But Scripture is also very clear this life and Christians are not saved to go on cruise control until they reach heaven's gates. That's just not the case. We're saved and made the lights of the world to stay in the darkness of the world until we're brought home. As we see in verse 15, that continues. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, as Paul saying here, if we can nail down this no complaining way of living, will we finally reach perfection? Absolutely not. We'll reach perfection when we are called home. So then it's not dependent on our works, but rather this serves as a brief identity check to the Christ follower. That says, you are saved that we may appear blameless and innocent without blemish. And the context of our innocence is drawn in the comparison to a crooked and twisted generation, the sin of the world. Now this verbiage brings two things to mind. The first, if you're a note taker, is that the changed life of a Christian should reflect Christ. That makes us stand out. We look different than the world. The second is that the changed life of a Christian is lived amongst the crooked and twisted generation that is dark with sin. Not to speak in a condemning tone, but to understand that there is a contrast all throughout this world, and there is really no gray area when it comes to this, of being a light with righteousness and one with Christ and being dark from his absence. There's no 
cruise control of neutrality that happens in between. And for the Christian, that applies even more so that when we are saved, we're made to be the light of the world. And you may even think of it as lamps. But today, there's so many teachers that would have us think that we can place a sort of shade over ourselves as lamps of the world, as lights of the world, to go into the darkness and somehow bring the darkness to the light. And the fact of the matter is that the moment of being made a new creation in Christ doesn't occur so that the new child of God would immediately ascend up into heaven. Instead, we're left here on earth to work for God's good pleasure. As we look back to last week, in verses 12 and 13, we are left to work out our salvation in the fear of God, knowing it is God who works in us for his good pleasure. Like we said, that also sets us up to live in such a way that is not in grumbling or disputing. Because we understand, as we persevere, it will not be in vain, and we will be found blameless in the midst of darkness. That a Christ follower is left here on earth to work and fulfill the purpose that God has placed on their lives. And we can all take joy in understanding that whatever purpose that may be, and understanding that everybody serves a different one. Think about your place of work. That is your mission field. Think about your family. That is your mission field. Your classmates, your classes, Georgia College, GMC, your homes. Your purpose is exercised through that, but every single purpose arrives at the end that God is glorified. And it comes from the foundation of understanding that we are the shining lights in the darkness of the world. But how seriously do we take this call? How seriously do we examine the contrast of light and dark? It's easy to put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker that we're the light of the world and salt of the earth, but it's also easy for whatever reason for us to forget in the Gospel of Matthew that says a lamp shut up under a basket serves no purpose and is not shining at all. Or that the salt of the earth, if it has lost its taste, is tasteless and serves no purpose at all. So for Christians in the room, if we are not shining in the darkness of the world, what purpose then are we serving? What's the foundational God we are striving towards? A popular movement in today's Christianity is allowing this sort of compromise to such a point, like we said, that we all shut our lamps under a basket. And as I was reflecting on this, this ideology that we can somehow act like the world, live like the world, and bring Christ to the world, and how it just doesn't makes sense. It made me think of other comparisons that may line up. If I came to you and told you I was a runner, but you can see by my weight, and if you looked at my daily schedule, that it would be safe to say I am not a runner. Brad gets what I'm saying back there. Or if I came to you and told you I was a vegetarian, but I ate steak five nights a week and never touched a vegetable, you would be safe to assume I'm probably not a vegetarian. Now let's look at it in a scriptural context. If I came to you, a hypothetical 
non-believer of Christ. And I acted like you, talked like you, treated people like you, but then one day told you that there was this gospel that made me different from you, you would be just in thinking of me to be a hypocrite and nothing that is different. How much can that apply to us this morning? Because this is the seriousness of being the lights of Christ entrenched in the darkness of this world. There is no such thing as dimmers we put on to go and be all things to all people. What that means is we meet people where they're at with our Christ. We don't go offer something to somebody that they already have. If it's anything other than Christ, it is death. Just the same, that means we're willing to sit entrenched in the darkness and engage it and not beat it over the head with our self-righteousness. We put in the work as the lights of the world to shine no matter what the cost. And if we think about this truly, if our lives don't look different from the world, and I'll preface this, don't hear me say this as a type of behavior modification. Don't hear me say, well, if you don't act different, then you're not a believer. Don't hear me say that. Because really, if we base our salvation, if we base our changed lives on what we do, then our lives truly aren't changed because we haven't recognized what Christ has done in our place of what we never could. And that is live the one perfect life in full obedience to God. What I'm about to say falls in line with what the proper response of a Christian is in a changed life. So if our lives don't look different than the world's, then can we truly say we're set apart? And if we aren't set apart, then we can't say we're children of God. So maybe you're asking yourself, how, how can I look different than the world? If I'm supposed to reach the world, how do I look different from the world, still engage the world, and then still reach the world? Or maybe you've been falling victim to trying to light up the darkness with darkness itself, like this wave of teaching. We see the answer in verse 16 that says we can do this by holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We press on and can do so without grumbling or disputing. We light up the darkness, not by our own actions, but because our actions are a response to the life change that occurs when we see who Christ is. You tracking with me? Somebody. Thank you. When we see who Christ is, it does not leave us in neutral. We see it and we turn and run towards the Father, grabbing whoever we can take with us, whoever He turns over to us and to Himself. That is the purpose we serve. We cannot light up the darkness with a shade we shut up over ourselves. But we do this and we do this, this difficult work. And it's not easy. Again, but guys, Christians aren't supposed to be the most relevant people in the world. We're not supposed to be the coolest people. That doesn't equal being the most loving. 
If we want to be the most loving people in the world that we're called to be, it equals being the most obedient we can be to the goal that God has placed on our lives. And somewhere along the way, especially with our generation, the ball got dropped on our heads and made us think we have to be the most attractive group of people. The gospel is attractive enough. That's what gives people life. Not, not our actions or, or how we hold the door open for them or the sweet text we send them. If it's never coupled with the gospel, then all we're offering their death is more death. We're throwing more dirt on top of their hypothetical coffin. Do we love people enough to shine light into their lives? And we can do this by holding fast to Christ, to the word of life. This is our only hope to change this world. And if you've been at the branch long enough, if you've come to fam at least once, you know we're not a body that comes together just to pat ourselves on the back and say we're a body. We come together to be refueled to go and work and serve the Lord in every facet of our lives, to be a mobilized foot soldier people of Christ that go and seek to love others as Christ has loved us unto himself. That is the very purpose we serve, but we can't do it unless we hold fast to the word of life like we see here. It's because of this that when Christ returns, if we have been serving and living our lives in such a way that Christ has been the foundation of our lives, that when he comes back, we won't be in vain. And hear me and understand that I can relate if you're thinking in your head, I try so hard with my one friend, but I don't see any results. I try so hard with this family member, but I haven't seen them come to know Christ. I myself have tried so hard to know Christ for who he says he is, but I just can't get behind it. I just can't believe that who he says he is if I hurt so much every day. And I would say it is through those things that Christ is most magnified. When our agenda goes out the window, when our perception and our viewpoint is no longer fixed on what would make sense to us or what would lead us unto comfort and only fixed on Christ, then and only truly, truly then can we hold fast to the word of life. An old quote comes to mind. I don't know if it's a Southern Baptist adage or, or something. But if, if we worship Christ in such a place of submission on our knees and need for him, he will never have to put us on our knees. Paul lived a life like this. And if you know anything about Paul before he was a Christ follower, he did not the one who chased after Christians, men, women, and children, and sought their persecution unto death. This is who is writing to us this morning, to the church in Philippi and to us as the church today. That is the background of the man who is writing to us, saying cling to the word of life. So if anybody can get it, it's Paul, because he did everything but that. This doesn't serve as the product of our actions, but rather the basis of them. We don't work hard. We don't go after it and get it. We aren't good people 
who can conjure up this type of goodness. It's something to be rested in and then acted in. So then it's the only way that we can do what Scripture is calling us to do, is to cling to the word of life. Paul writes here, and I can't stress it enough here, that the only way to be marked as blameless and set apart in this world is to cling to Christ himself, not who we would like to think Christ is. Scripture is sufficient enough and Christ defines himself. Are we willing to humbly submit ourselves to who Christ says he is and who he says we are? We can't conjure up a more extraordinary faith despite what some may say. Because guys, I say it again, and not to, uh, to come at you, but to come from a place of humility myself, uh, of my early Christian life, working so hard, thinking I could garner more favor in the Lord or be more saved in the Lord. And if you just think logically, that is not how it works I can't go back and nail Jesus up again to receive more of his blood, more of his sanctification for myself. It is once and once for all, but some reason, again, we have gotten it twisted to think that we can garner up a new faith, a more extraordinary faith, as if the thing that makes our faith extraordinary is how much we believe. When the fact of the matter is Christianity is so unique. God is so merciful that we're not held to the standard of conjuring up our own extraordinary faith because the only thing extraordinary about what we believe, why we believe it, and how we believe it is the one who gives us our faith, and that is Christ himself. Hear that this morning. It is not on us. It is not possible for us to conjure more of the Holy Spirit. Once it was descended in Acts 2, it was in the church. We live and operate in it today. We cannot pray a specific prayer to garner more. We have been given everything we need. We spend too much time in this life sitting on our hands, waiting for more favor when we have been found favorable in the eyes of the Lord. Again, not anything having to do with our own extraordinary measure as if we have any of our best filthy rags to offer up, but everything to do with Christ. Christ and Christ alone. If that does not fire you up enough or stir your affections up enough, then you need to sit and think about the measure Christ lived, how he came from perfection to be perfection, how he sat on a throne of righteousness to take on the weight of our unrighteousness, not so that we could today take the best thing ever given to us and try to replace it with something better that stems from our own actions, but instead act wholeheartedly in accordance with the best gift ever given in his crucifixion. We can only do this if we cling to the word of life. If you feel like you are dying some weeks, toiling for the gospel, it is because you are. Consider what you turn your life over in the morning to as it starts. 
Does your day begin thinking how you can best serve the Lord? This false, sneaky pride that sneaks in when we don't begin every waking moment reflecting on Christ. Who Christ is, who he was, and who he came down for us to reflect. I know it may not be something you've thought about before, but if we think in how we exercise our faith, and any of it is based on us, consider your testimony. Do most of the life change events start with I did, I said, I came. What has Christ done in your life? Don't hear it from me. Hear it from Scripture that the only way we can go through this life without grumbling or disputing is found here in 16 by holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And that means the hard stuff too. Consider our writer who was imprisoned and freed from prison, but that is not why God was good in Paul's life. God was most satisfied and most glorified in Paul's execution. We read about in 17, as he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, speaking in the church of Philippi, I am glad and rejoice with you all, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. We can take note from Paul's example of faith is that it is so rooted in who Christ says he was and who Christ defines Paul to be as the least of these. Not the most relevant. Not the most popular. Not the one with the most pull. But the one who used to hunt and kill Christians. The one who God broke unto himself. And the one who we can take perhaps the most note from today outside of Christ himself. His example of faith being so rooted in the word of God. So for everybody in here, this is a plea not to abandon the only firm foundation given to us and replace it with our own shifting sand. That is what we do when we see what Christ has done. It is as if we had been going through life and toiling and hurting alongside our family members who may be hurting too, and we see the answer to all things, an answer that isn't good as long as our answers are given to us, as long as our problems are solved. We see a God who is so good that for the cancer-stricken, even if cancer overtakes to the whole, they are brought home. That even the grave cannot defeat the goodness of Christ. That is what it seems to be when we see the wholeness of Christ and we say, hallelujah, amen, let me go see what I can add to the best thing ever over here. How foolish does that seem? 
when we are drowning and the only life raft we could ever hope to have to pull us to shore is right here on the cross. Let's try to doggy paddle our way back to the shore. That is what it seems to be when we ignore in the practice of our lives what Christ has done for us. That is what it looks like when we ignore how vital the word of life is. Scripture is very intentional in how it holds Christ in this Bible to be synonymous. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God that is referring to Scripture that we have in whole today. How much do we cling to this? It is not an old ritual. It's not something to be dismissed. Despite what some teachers say today, the first half of it is not something to be unhitched from. It's the very foundation for the New Testament we live and breathe in. Despite what some would say about not necessarily having to believe that Moses parted the Red Sea, you don't necessarily have to believe that Mary was truly a virgin. Despite some that would prop our generation up and other believers in the world today with the defense that don't have to know every detail or believe every fine detail. You just have to believe in the resurrection out of the fear that maybe you won't be able to defend this Bible. The Bible defends itself. It is worthy of reproof for teaching and for life. There's nothing we can add to it. Not in practice or impact. It is good enough for a people who aren't. Please hear that the word of God proves itself. It doesn't need our help and it certainly never asks for it. The only thing it commands is to trust and submit and go. Its depth is so rich that it can be studied for life. Its friction with our flesh so sharp that it can refine our very being. It's truth steady enough to build our entire life on. It's perfection enduring of all the ages enough to proclaim and die for. And the Savior at all points back to being the only one worthy of our praise, being the only one who can sustain our lives, and being the only one who calls us unto grace and true life. So much so that along with Paul, we can count it a rejoicing if we are to be poured out as drink offerings. The original Greek that Paul uses here falls in line with the slaughtering of animals that would happen in the Old Testament and what would eventually befall Paul. As he says again, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I am to be slaughtered as an animal, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And here's the kicker that he drives home in 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul doesn't leave us out in the cold or with an out to think, wow, Paul, that's really great. Your faith is so great and so sustainable and so enduring that even if you were slaughtered, 
you can rejoice. That's awesome. He ties us into it as well. We, we don't have an out. If our lives are claimed by Christ, changed by Christ, and then sent and endured and sustained by Christ, then we have no out. Again, like I said earlier, there is no gray area we get to coast in. The gospel leaves no room for neutrality, not on anything. Think about the relationship between light and dark. If there is pitch black darkness, it is not going to be changed by darkness. But if there is one light, no matter how small, flickering, it will light up the darkness. There's a contrast all throughout our lives. We need to only be aware of it. Again, it is not to condemn those who don't believe in Christ. How would they believe if they haven't heard? I can't think of a greater call to action to God saying to us, there is a dark and twisted generation that is living in their own devices out in this world. If only something could change it. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, here's this eternal problem. There's this people in the world that have sinned and fallen away and are separated from me for eternity. Oh, woe is me. Woe is my kingdom. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He sets us up on the only firm foundation that is soaked with his son's blood that we can live. He says, there is a dark and twisted generation. You are my lights of the world. Do we love the world truly enough to light up its darkness? How much longer will the church of the New Testament, will the church of America go to the darkness with its lamps shut up under a basket and expect there to be change? How much longer will we go to our places of work, to our schools, to our families, to the one person we have been praying for and perhaps seeking with gospel intentionality with the light of Christ shut up under a basket and expect it to peek out when we lift it just a little bit? When will we rejoice in the fact that it is the light of Christ that is sustaining us, that we are not called to hold fast to the word of life because we carry the word of life, but because the word of life has come, was crucified, and then resurrected to carry us. That's our gospel call. The, the cross is not in place just for us to look at like a monument. It is the launching pad for the rest of our lives unto eternity. And guys, God is worth worshiping not because of what he gives us or because of what prayers he answers knowing he always does, even if it doesn't align with what we want the answer to be. God is not worth worshiping because of that. God is not worth dying for because of everything he can give us. God is worth dying for because he is God. 
Christ is worth living for and trusting because He is Christ. Not because we can garner up a more extraordinary faith when our faith came and was imputed on us, given to us freely. We, we can't fit in. It's, it's as if the whole world is in the whitest of white robes. And when we come to know Christ, to take Scripture for what it says, we are washed in His blood. How are we going to fit in when our robe as a Christ follower, as its son and daughter of the one true King, is glowing with the righteousness of Christ? We have to try to hide it. We go out of our way to avoid certain people. We go out of our way to avoid doing certain things in our lives. Why and how much longer? The gospel is clear. It will reach all four corners of the earth. And for, ha- for somebody in here today, maybe the first thing you have heard about Christianity in years or maybe ever, hear this, that the beauty about the gospel is that it does not call us to pick up, clean up, and earn. The beauty of our gospel says the same thing Satan says of us, and that we are wretched. We are gone beyond repair. We are lost in darkness, turned over to the sin of our own ways, and it is trampled out under the foot of God and the cross of his Son. That's the gospel. That it's not something that God tells us about and says, go get it, kid. It's something that is given to us through his son enough to set us up for life because it is as vital as the oxygen we breathe to live. That is Christ. So as the new year approaches, may our Hope and our cry be not this thinking of new year, new me. May we form habits of submitting and living wholeheartedly for Christ because of who Christ was. May we stop placing so much of our focus on ourselves and what we can do and begin every day looking at Christ, seeing who he is, who he was, what he did. And who he calls us to be. Again, if this is the first time you have been in a church, welcome to the branch. And perhaps you may be somebody in the room who has been taught from grade school to now that your faith comes from a prayer you pray. That was me. I was six years old. I was in vacation Bible school, given the ultimatum of here's heaven, here's hell, say these ABCs to escape hell. What was I going to do? I wasn't going to not say them. Little did I know I was blind, being led by the blind until I was 13, and Christ broke me unto himself, showing me every foundation of my works I had built up, my sand castle that I had accumulated for myself, with all its rooms and all its dark and grimy glory was washed away with one simple wave of life. And he set me up on a firm foundation. Is that you this morning? If it is, rejoice. 
That's why we stand in the back. And a time of response, rejoice, you have been given new life. Don't shut it up under a basket. You are now redeemed. Now able to call yourself a son and daughter of the king, tell us about it. Let us worship with you and then go on mission with you. The same for somebody who may be seeking and wondering about Christianity. This is the gospel. If today you've realized and you've heard this message and by God's power and the Holy Spirit working have realized, I cannot live for anything else. If what you've said is true and if you test it with Scripture itself and you see this is the only thing that can sustain me for life, this is the only way I can truly live, why would I not live with it? Tell us. Not so we can say, Amen, another salvation but so we can rejoice with you and come alongside you and lift you up and envelop you in our family. Ask anybody who's a partner here so that we can truly live together. This is too serious and too vital for our very lives not to respond to. If you're a Christ follower, submit to Christ himself. If your life has been changed by Christ, it should reflect Christ. That will make you stand out. Why cover it up with your own efforts? Why keep life from those who are dying just because it might make us a little bit uncomfortable when the eternal cost is life or death? It's not a scare tactic. Our God is just good enough that we should be running and building relationships with those in our lives who we know need the gospel. What is your response today? As we take communion and as we close out in our set of worship, please understand that the only shame to be had is if the Lord is working in your heart and you don't respond. Other than that, if you have been living in darkness, trying to reach the darkness, and somebody has placed a weird false light bulb in you, rooted in an ABC prayer or your own works, there is no shame in breaking that thing and turning your life over to Christ. We will celebrate wholeheartedly with you. Whether it be for the first time, you truly understood, even if you've grown up in church, or even for the one who has heard it for the first time today. If this has stirred your heart for Christ, if you have recognized the only true life we can have is to submit and surrender whatever we call anything else to Christ. Guys, if we truly, truly take hold of this, there is no excuse and no way that a gospel people so rooted and so entrenched like Paul was that can say even if we are to be poured out as drink offerings for the faith of others, we will rejoice. That is what the Branch Milledgeville is about. That is how seriously we take the gospel and that is how much we rejoice in the finished work of Christ. May you rejoice in us, whatever that may be. Father, thank you so much for who you say you are. Thank you that your righteousness 
is sustaining that your cross holds us. God, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Not that we may examine what you did or who you said you were, but that we would see it and be so overcome that we had to live for it. So, Father, thank you for who you are and first loving us. It's in your son's name. Amen.